Happy Sunday, everyone. My name is Siddhi, and I'm one of the teachers here at Spark. It's so great to be with you all here today. We just finished preaching through a series over the past few months called When a Child Asks, tackling some of the complex, challenging, existential, and most of all, incredibly fun questions that you all pose to us. So a huge, huge thank you to all of you for the opportunity to wrestle with your questions. It's been a total blast. For those of you who are new to Spark, before When a Child Asks, which in pandemic times at this point feels like over a decade ago, we were in the middle of teaching through the gospel according to Luke. Today is Palm Sunday, which remembers the day Jesus makes his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, representing a kingdom so radically unlike the kingdom represented by Pilate's procession, which stands for power, violence, and the glory of the Roman Empire. And so I think it's so fitting that Palm Sunday is the day we re-enter into Luke's great narrative, which more so than the other gospel accounts, places Jesus firmly at the center of the battle between the kingdom of Caesar and the kingdom of God. One crucial feature of Luke's portrayal of the kingdom of God is what many scholars call the great reversal. Or, if you're a complete Hamilton nerd like I am, you might call it The Great Reversal, or The World Turned Upside Down, looks like this. Jesus challenging and humbling the rich, the powerful, and the influential, and raising up the oppressed, the marginalized, the hungry, the sick, and the poor. From the very beginning of Luke's narrative in Mary's song, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. We see how God is at work in reversing poverty and powerlessness, from the inclusion of Gentiles into the community of God, to advocating for the powerful role of women in society and ministry. While Matthew's gospel account traces Jesus's genealogy to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, Luke's gospel account traces Jesus's genealogy all the way back to Adam, the father of us all. We see the great reversal continue repeatedly throughout volume two of Luke's work, the book of Acts. And so I think, Spark, that it's also serendipitous that the passage that we're gonna cover today as our reintroduction to Luke is, I'd argue, emblematic of what Luke is trying to do as a whole in his entire gospel account. So with that, let's read this short passage together, which is exploding with meaning and with possibility. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as testimony against them. So they set out and went village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere.
Early in Luke's account, we see Jesus established as the single one through which all redemption and renewal would come. Jesus then calls his first disciples to join his ministry, showing how other people would be involved in his mission to bring the kingdom of God on earth. Up until this passage though, the role of those disciples, besides them leaving everything to follow him, has yet to really bloom. Today's passage is the point at which Jesus' disciples enter the performance stage, becoming real actors in God's story. Jesus sends them out into the world with the same authority that he has, like healing and exercising. In fact, the passage is important enough that we see it directly referenced again in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus commissions a larger group of people to do the exact same thing, and yet again in Luke chapter 22 at the Last Supper. There are many, many ways that scholars have interpreted this passage. Some have said that Jesus is assuring his disciples that they should receive the same welcome and hospitality that he did. Others have argued that the passage is meant to emphasize a kind of faith that's undistracted by material goods, and that true faith and discipleship is knowing that God will provide for all needs in all circumstances. Still, some other scholars say that this passage is a warning to the disciples against falling into a first century practice of abusing village hospitality and moving from house to house to try to find better accommodations, which was something characteristic of the wandering philosophers of the Middle East. And still yet others argue that when Jesus is talking about the dusting of feet, he's transforming the previously ethnic definition of Israel into instead a definition of those who accept versus refuse the word of God. I know, there are that many ways to think about just six lines. Yeah, welcome to the world of theology. I see value and possibility in all of these readings, but there's one line in today's passage that particularly resonates with me that I'd like to focus on today, and that is, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. And to dig into why that line is so meaningful to me, I'd love to tell a story. In 1956, the nonprofit Save the Children sent international development practitioner Jerry Stern into Vietnam to help fight the battle against child malnutrition. What happened after has become a story of legend amongst those who work in development. Sternin, to say the least, did not face a warm welcome. The Vietnam foreign minister, whose patience was wearing very thin after seeing a lot of Western do-good efforts in his country that really failed to create any sustainable change, gave Sternin just six months to make a difference. The conventional wisdom that Sternin's colleagues had believed for years was that the primary cause of malnutrition in Vietnam was local ignorance to the importance of childhood nutrition. Sternin quickly realized that this way of thinking wasn't working and wasn't sustainable. So, he relied on local mothers as volunteers who went out to weigh and measure children in several villages in the Than Hoa province of northern Vietnam. When Sternin looked at the results of the field research, he found something really interesting. In spite of living in the same environment and very similar economic conditions, there was a ton of variability in childhood malnutrition. Sternin set off to understand what the families of children who were not malnourished 
were doing differently than the families of those that were. And he discovered that there were a couple major differences. The mothers of well-nourished children were going out to the rice paddies daily to get tiny shrimps and crabs, which they were adding with sweet potato greens to their kids' food. This contrasted with conventional wisdom in the village, which was that shellfish and greens, though free and readily available, would be inappropriate to feed young kids. Mothers of well-nourished children fed them four times a day, as opposed to the malnourished group, who only ate twice a day. Sternin was astonished. The many attempted external solutions to childhood malnutrition over the years hadn't been working because development practitioners had been ignoring the solutions that were right in front of them, within the community. In this case, solving malnutrition didn't require a lot of money or a ton of resources, but instead, encouraging villagers to emulate the successful behaviors of their own community members, who Sternin went on to call positive deviants. Unlike traditional development and poverty alleviation efforts that focus so much on bringing resources into a community from the outside, Jerry Sternin discovered the huge, transformational, and untapped potential in finding solutions with and within the local communities affected. Our narratives often assume that the existing environment doesn't really offer any patterns for a solution, and therefore, they call on investing more and more and more external resources to create change. But many times, as Jerry Sternin learned, the people, resources, solutions, and potential are right in front of us, in the very communities we serve. We just need to open up our eyes and use them. I'm gonna play a video and I'd love for you all to pay very close attention and count the number of passes the team in the white jersey makes. Ready? Here we go. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? See how easy it is to miss what's right in front of us? This experiment on inattentional blindness was conducted by Daniel Simons at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and Christopher Chabry at Harvard. And it shows us that when we're not paying attention, we don't see the unexpected, even when it's in plain sight. Jerry Sternin's experience and discovery of the potential right in front of him led him to found a movement called Positive Deviance, the idea that in every community, we can find people whose brilliant knowledge, creativity, and context allow them to find better solutions often than outsiders. Similar movements like Appreciative Inquiry, which helps organizations grow by looking at what's going right, not wrong, 
and asset-based community development, the practice of mapping the assets within a community to achieve transformational change have gained a lot of momentum over the years. Many of these ideas grew out of the work of Paulo Freire, the legendary Brazilian educator famous for the book Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Freire writes this, it is necessary that the weakness of the powerless is transformed into a force capable of announcing justice. For this to happen, a total denouncement of fatalism is necessary. We are transformative beings and not beings for accommodation. That sounds pretty Jesus to me. Freire, by the way, was a Christian, though that's rarely mentioned in his biographies. I think that Jerry Sternin, Paolo Freire, and many others embody what Jesus is trying to do in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Could the idea of take nothing with you be Jesus' way of emphasizing to his disciples how important it would be for the communities they visited to co-create and chart their own path forward? Could it be a commission to, as part of that great reversal, value the dignity of people and their communities and find solutions indigenous to their way of life. To grasp the true power of what I think Jesus might be getting at here, I think we need to challenge a few assumptions that we often hold, many times subconsciously, about poverty, power, and who really owns the potential to create change. Now, this isn't to say that any of you in particular hold these assumptions, but that they're very real and very pervasive in the world of social impact. And these are assumptions that I myself have had over the years and had to wrestle with. The first assumption, rampant in the world of nonprofits and social enterprise, is that a select, educated, privileged few have the right background and resources to bring about change. As someone who used to run a nonprofit, I've experienced firsthand how the people and communities being served by many organizations are rarely represented in leadership roles, and how many of the biggest, most prestigious social impact fellowships often go to Ivy League educated applicants as opposed to brilliant change makers from and within communities of need. I remember a vivid moment where my husband Adil and I were selected for a prestigious fellowship in Mumbai for our nonprofit. When we suggested that we swap our fellowship slot with an incredible young man who lived in the slum we were serving, who knew his community far better than we did, who was leading all of our nonprofit day-to-day -day operations, who would benefit far more from the fellowship's resources than us, but who happened to never graduate high school, because he had to drop out and work to support his family. The fellowship said they'd rescind our slot, telling us that the, he didn't have the right credentials for the program, which was all about investing in local change makers. This story spark is far more common than you'd think. The idea that potential and possibility is concentrated in the hands of just a few is fundamentally counter to the story that we see in the Bible. Old Testament scholar and theologian Walter Brueggemann wrote a stunning essay called The Liturgy of Abundance. In it, he emphasizes that from the very beginning of our biblical narrative, we see a story of God's overflowing gift of abundance that belongs to everyone. Genesis 1, Brueggemann says, is a song of praise for God's generosity, a picture of our Creator's force bringing life 
and vitality and potential to all people and all things everywhere. In Psalm 104, which is one of the longest creation poems that we have, the psalmist looks at all of God's creation in awe and in wonder and says, He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all of the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There, the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the junipers, the high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hyrax. This goes on for a while, 35 whole verses celebrating the abundance with which God has blessed all things. To me, the liturgy of abundance makes crystal clear that when we restrict our understanding of who has resources worth giving or abundance worth sharing to the tiny subset of those with privileged resources alone, we diminish the gifts, the talents, the passions, the skills, and the innate potential that God has given everybody. The Apostle Paul emphasizes the diversity of God-given gifts we all have and drives home the true universality of God's abundance when he says in 1 Corinthians, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then, a few lines later, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Just like Jerry Sternen emphasized from his experience in Vietnam, and like Jesus implores us to think about when he asks his disciples to go out into the world with no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and no extra shirt, the communities we serve are abundant with possibility, gifts, resources, and potential, waiting to be identified, connected, and mobilized into action. Cameron Harder, who wrote the amazing book, Discovering the Other, Asset-Based Approaches for Building Community Together, writes this. In relation to creation, Israel, and the church, God is constantly portrayed as adaptive and inventing. God makes plans and revises them, initiates relationships, and then adjusts to our response. God mobilizes the most unusual and even despised resources. 
The biblical picture of God is not that of an engineer who designs a universe, builds it to perfect standards, sets it into motion like a watchmaker, and then shows up only for routine maintenance. Rather, God works with what's there, with the chaos in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and the chaos from Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 on, when human beings enter the picture. What's there is often not at all what God may have thought is ideal, yet God adapts in a way that brings marvelous new things into being. Isn't that powerful? So when Jesus asks his disciples to go out village to village and to take nothing with them, perhaps he believes that wherever they go, potential and possibility are already abundant. I'd argue that this interpretation extends to Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, the passage that follows today that we'll dig into after Easter. The second major assumption that many of us hold is that the bigger or the better resourced an organization or a group is, the better the change will be that they can implement. We need to look no further than the story of Israel to see that God, in communities that are far from being big or self-sustaining, is working beautifully even where things have collapsed. The entire biblical story is that of strength hidden in weakness, a message we often miss when we focus on the Constantine vision of Christianity, which is power, size, glory, and very little patience for weakness. Cameron Harder goes on to say in his book, clearly Christianity started off as the story of small places and small groups of people who for the most part were relatively poor and often refugees from large political conflicts being played out by the greater powers surrounding them. Yet, we have invested these stories with an artificial and fraudulent grandeur that badly distorts the narrative. Jerusalem is peppered with large cathedrals built to commemorate the events of Jesus' life. Yet, when one climbs down through the accumulated layers of the ancient setting, one finds little more than a rocky alcove where Jesus' body may have lain or his head rested. Those cathedrals are echoed and exceeded around the world by megachurches and European remnants of the Holy Roman Empire. In my opinion, for too many centuries in too many places, the glorious superstructure of the church that claims the name of Jesus has reflected little of the simple story in which it is supposedly rooted. The idea of smallness, doing more with less, of showing strength through the weak, shows up again and again and again throughout the Bible. In Judges chapter 7, Gideon, the leader of the Israelites, is challenged by God to work with less. Gideon feels like the right way to fight Israel's enemies is to build a giant army, so he recruits 32,000 men. In Judges chapter 7, verse 2, we read, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Now, if you keep reading this passage, this exchange between God and Gideon goes on and on and on and on until Gideon is left with just 300 men and God tells him to send the rest home. Gideon and his super downsized guerrilla army without swords or shields, but instead with lamps, instruments, and clay pots, drive their enemy away. And, of course, we have to look no further than the Trinity itself to see how God works through 
and with weakness to deliver strength. We have a father who gives his power and control to his son and to the Holy Spirit. A son that walks with the weak and eats with the poor and marginalized and who dies a humiliating death on the cross. The Jesus story in and of itself is a stunning exposition of how God works in the most unexpected of ways to carry out his rescue redemption mission of the world. And as Paul emphasizes in 2 Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The idea of bigness and strength being intrinsic to change and transformation and possibility really is more of a myth than a reality. The story of our own God makes that abundantly clear. Which brings me to the third major assumption that many hold, and one that I grappled with for a really, really long time. Sometimes we do get as far as to recognize that the communities we serve have people, gifts, talents, ideas, and resources that can be as or even more impactful than our own. There are so many organizations leveraging the innate potential within a community, partnering with local mothers, with children, with families, with entrepreneurs, with faith-based groups, and so on, to initiate collaborative, sustainable change. But sometimes, our belief and partnership can stop short of truly, fully trusting that communities may know what they need more than we do. Here's one example. Unconditional cash transfers, or UCTs, are programs that aim to reduce poverty by providing money, no strings attached, to in-need households, giving them the choice of allocating the finances however they see best fit to meet the needs they find most pressing in their lives. For a long time, critics have argued against giving money to the poor with no strings attached, claiming that people would spend money on frivolous desires or leisure items as opposed to decisions that would lead to sustainable outcomes. Other policymakers and critics have argued that giving money to the poor would discourage or disincentivize people from working. Yet, again and again, we find studies that have challenged these beliefs. JPAL, also known as the Abdul Latif Poverty Action Lab, alongside several other organizations, has found that, in general, giving financial support directly to poor households and allowing recipients to decide for themselves how to spend that money has significant positive outcomes, both economic and psychological. One example is Give Directly, a nonprofit that has provided cash infusions to poor households in Uganda and Kenya. Give Directly's team identifies the communities most in need and digitally sends money straight to people's bank accounts. Researchers used randomized control trials over the course of several years to study the results, and they found this. Families spend most of the cash transfer money on livestock, investments in their businesses, and resources to improve their homes. Beneficiaries also spent more on food and healthcare than their neighbors, and they spent no more money than before on what critics called temptation goods, like alcohol or gambling. The program, like many others, have found a number of non-economic benefits as well. Psychological well-being improved, domestic violence declined, the level of the cortisol hormone that signals stress went down, and people self-reported feeling more ownership, agency, voice, and autonomy in their lives. 
and pooling data from seven global studies on unconditional cash transfers, MIT economist Abhijit Banerjee and his team found that there is no systematic evidence that no-strings-attached cash changed people's propensity to work. As an aside, Abhijit Banerjee wrote this amazing book called Poor Economics with Esther Duflo that I would recommend to everyone. They won the Nobel Prize for this work, and it's had a huge impact on how I think about some of these issues. To bring this all closer to home, we saw this trend play out yet again in our own backyard. A California program, which gave randomly selected residents living in neighborhoods at or below Stockton's median household income cash for two years with no strings attached, found that UCT's on average measurably improved families' job prospects, financial stability, and overall well-being. Now, None of this is to say that giving money to the poor is the only way that we should support them, or that poor people always make the best choices in these situations. While there's evidence that, in many cases, support these approaches, some of which we've outlined today, it's important to note that poor families don't always make the right decision, and that there are many circumstances where they make bad decisions. Not all families always benefit from these kind of interventions either. But the point I want to make is this, that Jesus' emphasis in today's passage on relying on the community extends to relying on the community's intellect, which means believing, trusting, and respecting that the poor have a strong understanding, oftentimes stronger than our own, of what they really need. And if all this sounds a little too removed, then here's a question, a challenging one that my husband and I ask ourselves all the time. When was the last time we might have told ourselves, I would never give money to X person, but I'd feel more comfortable giving them, insert X item here, books, resources, funds for school buildings, because I want to make sure that that money is used properly. It's a concern that I'm sure many of us have shared, but it's when we can fully include the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized in the very decision-making that impacts their lives that we often see the biggest gains. So let's wrap it all up today, Spark. The commission of the disciples to take nothing with you is, I'd argue, a call for us all to rely on the local community to create true, sustainable, scalable change. I think that Luke's narrative isn't just about transferring power from Jesus to the disciples, but also about transferring power from the disciples to the community. It's about taking power that is concentrated and instead making it power that is channeled. The good news of Jesus shared through the disciples is reliant on the local support system and involves a pretty dramatic reframing of seeing the poor and the communities they live in from the lens of what is, not what isn't. It involves discovering and celebrating the people, strengths, gifts, talents, resources, and overflowing potential that is already there. When we assume that only people with certain qualifications and degrees and backgrounds are capable of being initiators of change in this world, we end up handicapping that liturgy of abundance. What kind of implications could this reframing have for providing people a way to partner with the movement of Jesus? Could it be dignity, ownership, effectiveness? What might it look like to build communities that authentically reflect the quality of life and compassion that God imagines? How might we serve in a way that truly embodies the life of the Trinity? Could it be living closer to 
or even in the communities we choose to serve? Could it be learning to humble ourselves to receive the gifts of others instead of focusing on just our own privilege and power? Could it be telling different stories, stories not of weakness and doubt and what's lacking, but instead stories of potential and possibility and abundance? Could it be telling stories of the church's partnership as opposed to telling stories of failure and the church's rescue? Could it be telling those stories with communities? Could it be stepping out altogether and letting the community tell those stories for themselves? Could it be sending our kids to public schools with the children of our neighbors? Could it be rethinking ministering or serving at a distance? And could it be that when we worry about giving money directly to the poor, that it tells us more about us than about them? It's that time of our service where we share in communion and reflect on Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection through a tradition that was passed down from the beginning. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.